I would like to welcome everyone to Vegmon, which is a series with a holistic pilgrimage podcast devoted to vegetarian, vegan, and raw food people, places, and things in Vermont. I plan to interview local folks and experts living a plant-based lifestyle, as well as business owners of local restaurants, shops, and farms. Vermont is a wonderful state that has such a richness in people who are kind of do-it-yourselfers in the way of small business owners who are full of integrity in providing people with local, sustainable, pesticide-free, healthy, and nutritionally dense options. There is a particular emphasis in this podcast on nutrient-dense, minimally processed, raw, and cooked vegan whole foods and herbs. Also, all kinds of eaters are welcome here to listen and learn whether you eat meat or not. Most of you all know that incorporating more fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and legumes are beneficial to your health. And so let this be a resource open for all people to gain knowledge. An announcement before we get started with today's podcast. In mid-June of 2016, I will be hosting a free webinar on whole food plant-based nutrition. Stay tuned for the details. Today, I am talking with Don Bennett, who is an independent researcher, disease avoidance specialist, director of Health 101, author, and coach. At a young age, Don discovered inconsistencies within the health field, such as doctors who smoked and nutritionists who ate foods that were known to be harmful. Being a seeker of truth, he set out to learn the realities of health for himself. Discovering that traditional curriculums were filled with biases, hidden agendas, misinformation, and missing information, Don remained self-taught, examining information as a researcher and not studying it as a student, thereby avoiding the hurdles set up by academic tradition. He took a common sense approach to health and learned the value of looking past the conventional wisdoms. This approach, in conjunction with researching the teachings of healthful living pioneers and their modern day equivalents, and putting into practice what he had found to be true, allowing him to discover the realities of health. 30 years later, as a disease avoidance specialist, Don now shares his wealth of enlightening and empowering knowledge with others for their consideration and benefit. Don lives his life by these two mottos, seek the truth though the heavens may fall, and do unto others as you would have others do unto you, as long, of course, as that squares with do unto others as they would have you do unto them. So welcome to the show today, Don Bennett. Well, well, thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me on. So how did you get interested in a raw vegan diet? Well, this was about 30 years ago, before personal computers and uh, before the internet, and I know that's, uh, that's a hard concept to, uh, to think about for many people who grew up with these things, but I, I was fortunate to reach age 29 before there was even a personal computer that anyone could buy. I say fortunate because a lot of kids growing up with computers today, they don't know what it is to you know, go outside and play. <laughs> so anyway, I, I didn't know uh, that this diet existed. I didn't know there was such a thing as a raw vegan plant-based diet. The books in the library were of no help in figuring out what our, our diet should be. But I, I, I figured out that this was the way that I was designed to eat because I realized that the way I, I saw people eating wasn't the right way. It couldn't be the right way to eat. We couldn't have eaten this way right from the very beginning. And I saw people in my own family living to over 100 and other people in my family living to 65. They ate dramatically different diets. So I realized the diet had something to do with it. And I wanted to know what my diet was supposed to be because, you know, Amy, I wanted to be as healthy as I could be. So I used the tools 
that were in my toolbox, the only things I had available to me, common sense, logic, uh, rational thinking, and, and making sure to not allow any biases or personal preferences to cloud my judgment. And that part is very important to doing good research. And when I'm talking about biases and personal preferences, I'm talking about my own and the biases and personal preferences of others that are providing me with information. That's very important to know that it's coming from two ways, yourself and from others. So I didn't know it at the time, but I was using the scientific method to come to my conclusions. I admire that you sought information and, and education as an independent researcher, and that's so important. Uh, what was memorable when I saw you speak at the Woodstock Fruit Festival was that if there was any time where you did not agree with the company that was around you, you seemed to have the motivation to move around elsewhere to find your truth. Do you have any advice for other independent people out there who are also self-directed to find their own truth, such as how folks can separate the good information from the junk and how to maintain good critical thinking skills without getting wrapped up in groups, organizations, or institutions that they don't philosophically align with? Well, yeah, Amy, that is a great question, and it's, and it's of the utmost importance if people want accurate health information. So here are my tips. Number one, always remember these two words, human nature. We can have all kinds of prejudice and biases because of our upbringing and, and wanting to have friends and, and be around like-minded people. So if you have any of these, you can't let it affect your judgment. Can't let it color your judgment. If you're a naturally independent person, well, this certainly helps. But if not, but you're now thinking outside the box with regards to diet, you may be influenced by someone who does not have 100% accurate information. And look, I understand that if a, if a person who has health issues that haven't been helped by the medical industry, then find someone who says, well, oh, you know, read this book, or there's a book by such and such, and it helped my friend Joe, because he had something with him, and the medical industry couldn't help him. He read this book. It had to do mainly with diet, but with other things, and, and, and now he's cured. Um, so the person might think, well, hell, I have nothing to lose because the medical industry hasn't been able to help me, so let me get this, this weird book um, that n most people don't know about, and it's talking about what, a raw food diet? And they follow it, and they, you know, they get well, but they, they could assume that this program is completely correct because they got well, and, and they can assume that they'll have optimal health for their entire life, but this may not be true. There's a big difference between initial improvements and long-term thriving. So don't assume that just because a book or program resulted in vastly improved health initially, that it will automatically result in optimal future health. Now, when I say that, people say future health? Well, yeah, that's the health that you're going to have in the future. You're going to have a A-level of health every day that you're alive, right up until the last day. So what do you want that level of health to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now? And of course, the longer you go, the, the more difficult it can get to have optimal health. So I advise, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, that people be a researcher and not a student. And there's a huge difference between the two. If you're a student, students don't tend to question their instructors, their teachers, or their mentors. They may ask a question of, of clarification, but they don't tend to question the basics of what they're being taught. Now, researchers, by nature, question everything. It's nothing personal. They just do it as a matter of course. They question everything, and they're naturally skeptical about everything that they hear. They want to vet it. So my advice is to not follow one program or one educator. Multi-source education is best. And most important, don't just vet the information. Also vet the provider of the information. And I'll tell you why. You could have someone providing you with information and 
it helps you get better to heal something the medical industry wasn't able to help you with. And you might now feel that you owe this person a debt of gratitude because, wow, you were at your wit's end and you thought you were just going to be gone. And then you found this radical new idea of eating a, a raw food diet, let's say, and now you're cured. So you might feel like you want to support and actually defend this person. So if anyone like myself comes up and says, oh, this person's got a great program, I recommend their book, but it's not 100% accurate. There's, there's like 7% or 10% inaccurate information in it, which you have to know about if you want optimal health throughout your whole life. And this person may say, oh, no, that's ridiculous. This book is completely correct. And what are they basing that on? So you just have to... Um, don't follow one program. You have to actually look for conflicting information. Now, Amy, I know people out there are now furrowing their eyebrows. What? You're, you want to look for conflicting information? No, no, no. I don't want any conflicting information. Conflicting information is bad. No, it's actually very good because if you're following some information where a portion of it is not correct and then you come upon conflicting information, which, which challenges that, you should be happy because since you want correct information, you want to know if the information you were following is correct. And if it is, you need to know it so you can tell other people. And if it isn't, you want to know it so you can then find what the correct information is. So in other words, um, be, be, that's why I say be a researcher and, and not a student. That is so true. Thank you so much for answering that question. It sounds like you discovered that our health as humans is being compromised by the products and technology that are out there and how common disease is avoidable. Could you summarize some of the information that you discovered? In when a species of animal is no longer living in their biological eco-niche, in other words, in nature, their health is going to be at risk. You have but to look at the, the canine and feline hospitals that are out there. They're all over the place. The dogs and cats in the wild don't get cancer and arthritis and heart disease, but once they're domesticated, it's easy to not live to their health potentials. You take them out of their natural environment and put them in homes or zoos, and they simply can't be as healthy. And the same goes for us. We may think of where we've grown up as our natural environment, right? But unless you grew up someplace tropical, eating off the land, you did not. So compared to the way we once lived, humans are now a domesticated species when you really think about it. And today there are countless ways for us to not live up to our health potentials. Uh, today it's easy to get a disease. It's like falling off a log. Our economy is set up for it. Both, like I said, the things that get you sick and the, and the systems that manage the illness together, it's more than half of the GDP of the U.S. And then this is shameful. Amy, imagine a species from another planet where everyone is naturally healthy because they eat the diet they're designed to eat. And on that planet, there's no cigarettes or alcohol or junk food. What do you think they would think of a species that can walk on their moon and have computers and cell phones who have the worst health in the galaxy? So I, I've discovered that ill health is big business. So true health care is self-care. Talking about the diet, uh, what can harm us are the denatured foods, but also the foods that are deficient in vitamins and nutrients. So you and I discussed prior to the interview that the most problematic nutrients to get are often vitamin D, B12, and iodine uh, because of supply and demand. Could you tell us what you mean by that? I'm fond of saying that food matters, but nutrition matters too. And I differentiate between food and nutrition because in today's world, we need to think about them separately if we want optimal health. And, and one of the things I talk about in my third book are the memes that are popular but are nevertheless true. I alluded to this a little earlier. Let me give you another example. Many may have heard, quote, once you start eating enough fruits and vegetables, you don't have to worry about nutrition, end quote. 
Have you ever heard that? Ah, uh, yeah, I've heard things like that. Okay, yeah, and that's from a very popular uh, health educator. Now, and that sounds great. It sounds great, and I'd love to believe it, but I can't because it's been shown to be not true. Yet it continues to be touted by a raw food educator who has that popular book, and it's embraced and it's sort of retweeted by those who hold this guy in high regard and assume that whatever he says is true, yet it's not true. It's been proven to be not true, okay? Um, and it's a disservice to those who learn from educators who teach this kind of incorrect information, and it will more than likely affect their future health if they assume these memes to be true. Now, I've been counseling people for about 13 years, and I found that the vast majority of them are deficient in those three nutrients that you mentioned, DB12 and iodine, and that they are, those are, are mainly responsible for the issues that people come to see me about. When people come to see me, they have all kinds of different complaints that run the gamut. And they say, what should I do for this? And someone says, what should I do for that? the thing that I have? And really, you should do the same thing. It's, the medical industry says, well, take this drug for this and that, and, uh, this other drug for that. No, no, no. You should be doing the same thing regardless of what ails you. You, you basically take a first things first approach um, and you look at your diet and lifestyle practices. The lack of enough of those three nutrients, DB12 and iodine, are also the things that derail vegans and raw food vegans and cause and cause the most fails. And I'll explain why in a second. Unlike many practitioners, at least the ones who acknowledge that adequate nutrition plays an important role in optimal health, I don't just look at the supply side of the equation when it comes to nutrition. Now, many people, when they hear this concept of supply and demand regarding nutrition, they say, I've never heard this before. So, for instance, programs like Chronometer will do that, all right? You're familiar with Chronometer. A lot of our listeners are familiar with Chronometer. You enter the food that you ate for the week, and it will tell you if you got enough of, say, calcium. Okay, so, so on the supply side of the equation, first, let me ask, how does chronometer know how much calcium was actually in the food you ate? You didn't take samples of the food that you ate for the week and, and stick it into the USB port of your computer for chronometer to analyze. So what, what, is, what is chronometer relying on for its data? Well, it turns out there is no reliable source for this data because the crops that have been tested from all around the U.S. show widely varying amounts of all nutrients in, let's say, one gram of a specific variety of spinach or in one gram of a specific red grape variety, for example. All right? So that's something to think about. Now, on the demand side, dealt with the supply side. On the demand side, well, how much calcium do you need? How much calcium does Amy need? How much calcium does Don need? With, with nutrients such as DB12 and iodine and others, your needs today, first of all, may be different than your needs would have been if you had lived many millennia ago. Hmm. That's, that, that's something when I talk to people, they're going huh, even my colleagues are like, well, I never really thought about this issue. So this may be one reason why so many people are B12 deficient, for example, because of higher amounts of stress in today's world. So educators need to look at both the supply and demand issues when looking at nutrition. It's not just something for economics, supply and demand. And, and health conscious people need to recognize that both food and nutrition are important and that supply and demand are components of the nutrition issue. So when you hear memes such as, as long as you eat an all raw fruit and greens diet, you don't have to be concerned about nutrition, that should, it sounds great, but it should raise a red flag because it's been shown to be untrue. So many of us in Vermont and elsewhere are deficient in vitamin D. And I have a lot of questions about vitamin D, particularly because it would be very important for us who live in more northern latitudes to understand what is vitamin D and why is it important for us to be able to have a supply within our bodies? Well, like all essential nutrients, which are those we can't make on our own, 
D is important because it manages calcium in your blood and in your bones and in your gut, and it helps cells all over your body to communicate properly. And it's one of the nutrients that your immune system depends heavily on for optimal functioning. And like all nutrients, the amount that we need, like I said before, can be described as enough. So we absolutely need enough D. And when we were living in our natural biological eco-niche, you couldn't not get enough D. It was an automatic thing until we started wearing clothes and moving north and south of the equator. Then it became an issue. But where we're supposed to be living, no, we wouldn't have a discussion about D. They didn't even know D existed. They, they have no idea. They didn't need to know anything. How can adequate vitamin D be good for assimilating calcium and maintaining strong bones? Well, it's one of the key players for doing this. No, first of all, no nutrient works on its own. Every nutrient has what are called companion nutrients or cofactor nutrients. And it should be noted that your body could have enough D. If you went to a lab and you got a test, yeah, it could show your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level could be well within the range, but yet you're manifesting symptoms of vitamin D. Or maybe it's not in the range. Here's, actually, here's the, the scenario which is more likely to take place. You're getting plenty of sun. All right, you're sunbathing nude in July at 12 noon and you're getting tan, but you go to the lab and you get that test done and you're still below the range. If your body is low in magnesium or zinc or copper or boron or vitamins A and K, the D that your body is making won't be utilized properly by the body. So it may make it, but it won't use it. See, there's a difference between making it and using it. And sometimes it just won't even make it because of those companion nutrients. I've had people that have come in and they tested and their D was low and they started taking a D supplement because they couldn't afford a, a phototherapy device and they lived in Canada. And we tested them again two months later and it wasn't really moving up. I was shocked. I said, are you sure you're taking, let me see the product you're taking. No, oh, it's the one I recommended. And you're sure you're taking 6,000 IUs a day? Oh yeah, seven days a week. Wow. When we looked into it, they were low in magnesium, zinc, copper, boron, and A and K were okay. But if you're low in magnesium, zinc, copper, and boron, that's why they were having such a problem. And they were, because of the diet, they were eating a typical Western diet otherwise. So I said, okay, here's a good reason to be eating the healthiest of the diets that the human, you know, the, the diet the human being is designed to, to eat because you're not getting enough magnesium, zinc, copper, and boron, okay? So we got a, a really good supplement into their diet, a, a, a basically a raw food supplement. Believe folks, when I talk about supplements, I'm not talking about Fairgram and Flintstones and one a day and those things. 95% of the supplements you'll see on store shelves are worthless. They're just a waste of your money. There are 5% worthwhile supplements. So when you hear me talking about nutritional supplements, I'm not talking about all the garbage ones that can even burden the body. I'm talking about the ones that actually have some efficacy in the body. So we put these, this person on um, this supplement and their levels came up and then the D was able to be utilized properly and their 25-hydroxy vitamin D level came up. And one problematic thing is that people look at their test results like I did and at first and I asked my uh, health practitioner, well, my calcium is really good. Should I have a vitamin D problem? And could you explain basically how your calcium level could be totally fine, but you could be totally deficient in vitamin D? Well, your body has uh, many different ways of compensating for certain things. And plus there are genetic, genetic issues involved too. Uh, that's where the individuality comes in, by the way. It's not that some people need calcium and other people don't need any calcium at all. No, that's not the case. But some people's genetics will require less vitamin D to process the same amount of calcium than somebody else who requires more vitamin D. So there's this relationship between vitamin D and calcium, of course. Um, but so your body 
obviously is trying to keep calcium levels where it needs to be, trying to keep blood pH where it needs to be because if it, if it varies too much, you die instantly. So these are critical for the body to have. Um, so, and then there's also, you think about this too. If you have things in your life which require money to deal with, maybe a plumbing leak, and it's leaking right now, let's say, and it's starting to flood the basement. But you have other problems with the house too, think, repairs you need to make, and all the, but you don't have any money for anything. And all of a sudden you win the lottery and money comes in. You're going to have priorities of where that money goes. You're not going to spend it equally. You're going to say, okay, what's the most important thing I have to deal with? Well, the leak in the roof, let's say. That's, that's first, or the leak in the basement. And then I can get around to repairing this electrical outlet or something, you know. And the, and the body has the same priorities. So when vitamin D comes in, it, it's not like, well, here's all the glands and organs and tissues that require vitamin D. I got a total of 42, so I'm going to top up this vitamin D that just came in. There was 42 units, so I'm going to send one unit to each gland and organ. It doesn't work that way. The body is going to move vitamin D where it needs to be the most for the most important thing. So if your calcium is doing okay at the moment, okay, so then vitamin D will be used for something else, um, even, though the, even though your vitamin D level is low. And um, since vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. It's not, again, not really a vitamin. We'll talk about that in a minute, I think. But uh, <laughs> when D is, it, it's, it's fat-soluble. Fat so uh, it doesn't change as quickly as B12 can change. Uh, if you have a severe B12 deficiency, you can fix that in under a week, no problem. A severe vitamin D deficiency, oh no, there's no way you can fix that in a week. It can take two months or, or actually four months to get it to be where it needs to be. So there, there's longer lag times for things like that. So, and, and again, look, lab tests, are great, but they're not the ultimate. They're just, you know, snapshots in time, first of all. They're just a snapshot in time. And I've had clients that didn't believe that about their thyroid tests. And I said, go take the test four times during the day. And they had to do it out of pocket, of course, because no doctor would prescribe that, would order that. But when they did, they go, wow, it kind of varies a lot. Yeah. They're, again, snapshots in time. So you can take the same test the next day and it'll be different. So, I mean, but we try to do the best we can. And testing can be a useful tool for some things. And, but we can derive um, erroneous conclusions from other tests uh, just because we don't know enough. And that's a problem. You know, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. You've heard that expression. Well, that, that applies to the medical industry also. Um, so, yeah. So there are reasons for it. Sometimes, sometimes we know these reasons. Or uh, let me put it this way. Sometimes the reasons are known, but maybe not by the doctors who are looking at the test results because they're just going to go by. Look, doctors are busy. They get that test and they're just looking for L's and H's. And, some, and sometimes there's a center column. And if they don't see anything in the center column, everything is, quote, in range. And they're going to say, bye, nothing wrong, goodbye. But you could have, you know, insufficiencies of various nutrients that are not going to show up on that test. And it's causing your health to degrade very slowly over years, maybe decades. But the test isn't going to be rep representative of that. They're just looking for L's and H's. Um, and I understand that, but there are better tests that can be done today. SpectraCell has some really great tests where, where they can test nutrient levels, not in the blood because that can be irrelevant for a lot of nutrients, but they're going to test cellular utilization of a particular nutrient. That's a lot more telling to look at that. So how might the availability of vitamin D reduce a lot of issues like the risk of breast and prostate cancers, type 1 diabetes, PMS, and uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah, and there have been studies that have shown this. this, is, this is, we're now knowing that vitamin D plays more of a crucial role in our immune system than we would have ever 
that we had ever thought about, let's put it that way. So because of vitamin D's importance in the immune system, um, if you are low in D, you'll have a higher risk of those and other conditions. And often we have no idea of the exact mechanisms of how, they, how it works, but we can see that it works. There's, there's a clear correlation and we can infer that an adequate amount of D is important for disease avoidance. Now here's an example. Many years ago, there was a mental institution which had four wings. Actually, the building, if you looked at it from above, from a helicopter, was perfectly square, and it had four wings, each in the four corners, and there was a central corridor in the middle. And each of the four wings of this mental institution had its own director. Now, the director of one of the wings wanted to see if vitamin D had an effect on mental disorders. This was just something he thought about that there might be, you know, a, a action within the body on the part of D for the brain. He was just wondering. So this was a hypothesis. So he gave everyone in his ward a D supplement and a goodly amount of it too. They figured out what you would get from the sun and they gave it to him in the way of a supplement because, you know, people locked up in a mental institution are not going outside and getting sunshine, unfortunately. But what, what he found was when the flu season rolled around, he happened to notice that none of his patients got the flu. And he was taking the vitamin D too, by the way, just as a control. And he didn't get the flu either. And every year he always gets the flu. And many patients on the other three wards were getting the flu. So he was like, wow, none of my patients got the flu and patients on the other three wards were all getting the flu. It was an aha moment for him. But why do you not hear about this correlation today? And instead, we're admonished to get a flu shot instead of taking vitamin D, which is going to be a lot more effective for preventing the flu and not just for the flu. Because what does a flu shot address? Supposedly, it addresses the flu, but it doesn't address everything else. Vitamin D addresses the flu, polycystic ovarian syndrome, cancers, and the list is long. So wouldn't it just make sense to deal with the flu with, vi with vitamin D, having a high vitamin D level, or I will say a optimal vitamin D level? And let me just add this in. I counsel people from all around the world, okay? So when I recommended them to go get the 25-hydroxy vitamin D test, okay? It's a standardized, well, it's not as standardized as other tests, but I know, I know how to compare apples to oranges when I look at the test results of a 25-hydroxy vitamin D test. And they send me as a PDF the lab results from labs all around the world. And you know that on a lab test, for, um, you're going to have a, a thing called a reference range. So you're, you're going to see your result, then you're going to see the reference range, and hopefully your result is within the reference range. Well, you'd think that the reference range for vitamin D is going to be the same everywhere in the world. Why shouldn't it? It, it, uh, it doesn't really, you know... It's not like some human beings in some parts of the world are better at dealing with vitamin D than, than others. No. It, it is, of course, affected by our skin tone, how light or dark our skin tone is as far as getting vitamin D from the sun. But how your body utilizes vitamin D, we're all the same, basically. You would be shocked, and I have this in my article on vitamin D on my website, to see the different reference ranges that appear on lab work. Now, most of it is 30 to 300 nanograms per milliliter. 30 to, 30 to 100, okay? That's what you see a lot of, 30 to 100. And I've seen some come back and say uh, 20 to 100. And I'm like, wait a minute, 20? I have people that have been tested at 22 because, and they were manifesting symptoms of a vitamin D deficiency at 22, which makes sense. So in other words, those ranges you see for D anyway, that's like, it's called, the, I call it the passable range. It's not really, it's not the optimal range. What we found the optimal range to be is 50 to 100 or 50 to 80 it doesn't really matter at that point, 80 to 100 doesn't really make a difference. But if you can hold your uh, vitamin D, 25-hydroxy vitamin D level at, with 50 as the low end, not 30, that's better. And, and yet we have yet to see these lab reports. Maybe in 20 years, they'll knock that 30 up to 40. You know, they'll raise that from 30 to 40 in 20 years because of public 
the demand for it or something, or they just can't not do it. Um, but again, 30 to 100 is not optimal. It's just kind of passable. So what is it about vitamin D, though, that would reduce those risks of different um, issues like we talked about with the polycystic ovarian cancer and, and breast and prostate cancers and things like that? What in the vitamin D, what does it help with? Well, like I said, it, it, it's a key player. There's a lot of key players in the body. For instance, chromium is a key player to blood sugar metabolism. So if you're low on chromium and you switch to a fruit-based diet, you could get something called melon belly when you eat something like watermelon. And um, if you get melon belly from eating watermelon, you know, there's popular raw food educators who say, well, we don't know why this happens, but it's called melon belly. Well, I figured out why it happens. People are too low in chromium. When they boost their chromium levels up temporarily with a supplement, melon belly goes away. It happened to me. It happened to other clients of mine. Okay, so that's just an indication of not enough chromium in the diet because chromium is a key player uh, to blood sugar metabolism. So vitamin D is a key player to a lot of different um, reactions and enzymatic reactions that go on inside the body. It's not really, I keep saying vitamin D, it's not really vitamin, I cringe mentally inside when I say vitamin D or vitamin B12 because they're not vitamins and, you know, I like being honest and direct with people and to explain why I say things differently than other people uh, or why I say D or, and not say vitamin D um, because it's, well, we can get into the hormone. We can get into the, it's a specific type of hormone, a secosteroid hormone. Um, but so, like I'm saying, exact mechanisms are not necessarily known, but we see the correlations, and the correlations are, are very clear. Um, so it's not just like, well, if you have low D, you get rickets or you get, uh, you know, seasonal affective disorder, and that's the extent of it. Well, no, like I said before, it's not like just an on, a light switch, an on or off, you know, two state uh, situation. It's thousands of states. If you're getting lower and lower and lower on D, yeah, when you get to a certain point, you'll start manifesting symptoms. But, you know, I asked a medical doctor once, if you're at the point and you're not manifesting symptoms yet, you're close. Another month and you're going to be manifesting symptoms. But a month before you start manifesting symptoms of a vitamin D deficiency, is there any damage being done? And he's like, he shrugged his shoulders. I mean, come on, you can guess. Well, there's no studies. That, there's never going to be studies that are going to show. Let's try using logic and common sense. It's not that... You're perfectly fine. Look, the analogy is the gasoline in your car's gas tank. Your, ga your car runs just fine when the tank is full. It runs equally as fine when it's half full. It runs equally as fine when it's an eighth full, a sixteenth full. In fact, it'll run equally as fine one minute before you run out of gas. The body doesn't work that way when it comes to nutrients. Okay, It's like you sitting there reading a book and your kid is slowly turning down the knob on the wall and you don't see him doing this and he's doing it just to... You know, he thinks it's funny. And he, he'll invest 15 minutes of his life to do this and slowly turn down. And you don't really realize anything's happening, but you do find at some point it's becoming harder and harder to read the book. At first, not consciously, you don't notice this. Your eyes just happen to be squinting more or something to try and read. And then you consciously realize it's becoming more and more difficult to read the book. And finally, you look up and at the light, then you look over at the knob on the wall and you go, Jeffrey! But that's the point. It, it's, it's, it's gradations. So vitamin D isn't like everything's fine and it gets to be 29 nanograms per milliliter on average and oh, now all hell breaks loose. doesn't work that way. There's, there's damage being done prior to symptoms uh, developing. So it doesn't matter if it's cancer or symptoms from a B12 deficiency. There's damage being done before you start recognizing symptoms being done. So this is why it gets me when people say, well, you know, don't bother with testing until you get some kind of symptoms. And of course, go get it checked out. No, that's bad advice. 
for things that we know people become deficient in, living a certain way or living in a certain place because of vitamin D and far away from the equator, yeah, you, we know to check it out in advance. And if you see, oh, wow, I wasn't manifesting any symptoms that I really thought about, but look at this, I'm at 28 nanograms per milliliter. Hmm, not good when it should be 50 at least, you know, in the optimal range. So that just prevents the damage that was being done that you didn't really realize yet. Or maybe you did. You know, when people, they get older and they get, they were 20, now they're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And now oh, my vitality is gone. It comes with aging. No, it doesn't. It's because you've been eating the typical Western diet, not getting enough exercise and not getting enough sunshine and, and, and B12 for these many, many decades. So, it's, yeah, it's normal that you're feeling this way, but it's not just from growing older. It's from growing older, eating an unhealthy diet and living in an unhealthy manner. You're talking about the symptoms of vitamin D deficiency. What are they? How can we realize that maybe it's an issue? I know that we should be really on the lookout with our health and going and getting tested and seeing how we're doing. But uh, what can be an indicator of a vitamin D deficiency? Well, this is a tough area, uh, and it's what, it's what the medical industry loves to do. You know, uh, differential, they call it differential diagnosis. Um, there was a show on TV at one time called House. I don't know if people have watched that, but you got to see a surgeon and his, and his medical team doing differential diagnoses, and they would look at the symptoms, and they'd then try and say, well, could it be this? Could it be Asperger's? Could it be Huston syndrome? It's kind of a guessing game, especially when you consider that the symptoms of vitamin D deficiency, many of them can be symptoms of many other deficiencies having nothing to do with vitamin D. So this is why once I started seeing, you know, can we use this as, a, as, a, as a, a, a real good diagnostic tool for natural health? My conclusion I came to is no, especially when you consider that the best advice, okay, now if you've got any kind of symptoms, come right in right away, make an appointment right away. No, that's not good advice. It's getting check, checked out for certain things that we know can be problematic in our society today, in our modern society, before you start getting any kind of symptoms. And, and again, people who try to self-diagnose by looking at symptoms, because look, you can, there are so many internet sites that you can go on, WebMD, and where you can just punch in a symptom and it'll say, here's the possibility, here's the possible things that it could be. And you'll see in these lists, vitamin D deficiency. But there's lots of other things in the list besides vitamin D deficiency. So how do you know? You'd have to then start doing all these uh, particular tests. So I can say, well, if you're weepy, you know, if you tend to be getting weepy and you've never been weepy and you have really no reason to be weepy and, and kind of like sad and, you know, blue, well, you could have a vitamin D deficiency. You could also be dehydrated. Oh, geez, two very different things. So while you're going and having your vitamin D checked and you're, and you're getting weepier, you're just becoming more dehydrated for some reason. You've made certain changes and you're drinking less liquid and you stopped doing something or you're adding more salt to your diet to try and deal with there's so many variables. That's why I've come at it from a different perspective saying, let's look at what's most problematic, what's most probable and problematic, probable and problematic. And let's check those out before you start getting into symptoms, because symptoms can just send people down these, the, the wrong road. So many, so many times I've seen it over and over again. So that's why I don't like getting into it. And I've never really made a science of it because it's not that accurate of a science. Well, you know, I sun myself in the summer and some raw food practitioners will say, just sun yourself in the summer. It'll get you through your vitamin D winter. It'll get you through the winter when the sun isn't able to make any D. It'll get you through that. Well, in reality, no, it won't. But they're thinking that it does. So they're not going to even, even though they see D in that list of possible things causing those symptoms, they're not going to explore D because they think they're okay. Or they'll see B12 in that list of possible 
causes for the symptoms, but they'll say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm eating a raw food diet. And blah, 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 blah. I'm told I can get enough B12. It's not a problem. I don't, wa- I don't wash my fruits and vegetables, so I'm getting plenty of B12. Yet it was a B12 deficiency that was causing their problems. But they started exploring something else and starting to save up the money to do the test with Spectracell. But it was just a vitamin D test, and a vitamin D test is 130 bucks or, or 99 bucks, depending where you go. So that's why the self-diagnosis sometimes can be bad. It's really good to do it with guidance from someone who's had some experience on what is most probable. What problems can people have if they have a vitamin D deficiency? Well, yeah, they could have problems with their bones, whether they're children or adults. You can have problems with bones. You can have problems with uh, calcium absorption. Certainly, it can affect every gland and organ uh, that comprises your immune system, and that's a really, really bad one. So now you could have cancer and all, all kinds of issues. So we don't look at that. I mean, you know, you get a diagnosis of cancer, you're really focused on what you can do about it to, to, you know, to win the battle. So there are just so many things that the body depends on for sufficient vitamin D. So again, the word is sufficient or enough vitamin D. It's so difficult to try and say, you know, be, because fibrocystic breast disease, for example. Yeah, D, but also iodine, but also, 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 also. There's so many things. So that's why I don't like trying to pin a particular condition to a particular nutrient for the sake of diagnosis, let's say. That's why I don't like doing that. D has its companion nutrients, which if it doesn't have enough of magnesium and boron and the other ones, it, it can't be utilized properly. So, but, but aside of that, they work synergistically. To repair your car, you have something wrong with your car. Specific, there was a symptom. Now you discovered, you diagnosed it. Here's what's wrong. You need a whole array of tools to fix it. You, you can't just do it with that one 13 16th wrench. You, you can't just do it with that. It, you do need that 13 16th wrench, but you, you need a whole bunch of other things too. You need the pliers, you need the this, you need the grease. And, and, and if you're missing any one of those things, you can't solve the problem. How is it thought of more as a hormone than a vitamin? And could you talk a little bit about how it's made in the body? Well, sure. Uh, vitamin D is, like I said, it's not really a vitamin. It's a hormone, specifically a secosteroid type of hormone. But like B12, we call it a vitamin for convenience sake. How D operates in the body is it's more like a hormone and not like a vitamin. A vitamin is like a two-piece jigsaw puzzle. Hormones work totally different. And yes, D is not meant to come from our natural diet. We, we make the D we need or we're supposed to. And we will make the D we need, but only if we get enough sun exposure of sunshine that is strong enough to make D in our skin. And just because it's sunny out doesn't mean that those rays are strong enough. There are a lot of uh, factors that affect whether we can get enough D. A lot of people know that certain times of the year where they can go out and just lie in the sun at 12 noon and they'll never get burnt. They can lie there for hours and never get burnt because it's that time of year. It's, the sun is very low in the sky at 12 noon. It's just shining through a, too much atmosphere. The visible light gets through, but not enough of the UV rays that, that would cause D to be made or burning to, to occur in the skin if you, if you lay out there too long. So again, we're not designed to live. A lot of us live. Do you know the difference between vitamin D2 and vitamin D3? Is one better than another? Do I, do I know the difference? I better. These are two forms of calciferol. One, D3 is colcalciferol, which is what the sun makes when it shines through your skin. It's like the active, quote-unquote, active form of, of D. D2, ergocalciferol, has a lower bioactivity. It's, it's poor stability. The, the duration of action is shorter than D3, but it is vegan, okay? In other words, as a supplement, it would be vegan. But from those I've tested who are strictly vegan, the amount of a D2 supplement that they would have to take to get their 25-hydroxy vitamin D level into the optimal range 
would be impossible to take. And, and with some people, it doesn't even work at all, D2. D3 works all the time. So now, now people say, well, wait a minute, doctor such and such, he said D2 works all the time. It's preferable to D3. I'm like, okay, remember what I said before, Amy, about don't just vet the information, but vet the person. If you're getting an alternative health educator who is at heart a staunch vegan, and I'm a staunch vegan, nothing wrong with that. It's very good to be a staunch vegan, right? But if they're a staunch vegan and that affects their judgment, that colors their judgment, then they might be saying, yeah, D2, D2, rah, 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 because it's vegan. D3, no, no, you don't need to take D3. D2 works just fine. But in reality, it doesn't. So when I started hearing these people who, based on their, their training, their teaching, how intelligent they are, they should know better. I'm like, why is he saying that, that when it's not true? Oh, you dig a little deeper. You know how they say for some things you follow the money? Well, you follow the motivations. Uh, this is what I like doing. Because again, remember those two words? Human nature. So D2 is vegan. It doesn't work for everybody. It's not going to correct a deficiency. It may help you maintain a, an optimal level. If all of a sudden you move out of the tropics up to Canada, maybe you can maintain it with D2, but maybe not everybody. So you should always test, 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 test to make absolutely sure that D is D2 is working. But I have a number of clients who are staunch vegans who after they got tested, I made my recommendation. They said, but well, isn't D3 um, non-vegan? I said, yeah, at that time there was only non-vegan D3. And they couldn't afford the $1,200 for a phototherapy device, a light box, basically. So they said, no, I'm going to take D2 because that's vegan. I, I did my research. I said, all right, but you got to promise me you're just going to test again in two months. Okay, yeah, deal. Now, I knew, what, I knew it was probably going to show. And sure enough, because they had a deficiency. Sure enough, it didn't budge. I said, you, you've been taking it? Yeah, well, maybe it's just the brand I'm taking. I'm going to switch to another brand of D2. I'm like, dude, listen to me. You're at, 20, you're at 21 nanograms per milliliter. There's damage being done. Your immune system is not operating at full capacity, which could be letting cancer get ahead of your body's ability to deal with the blah, 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 right? Well, let me just try one more brand. Okie dokie. It's your, it's your life. And they did it, and they tried another brand, and I think he tried two more brands at the same time. He really, I said, look, save up for a, the, the phototherapy device. Get it, if you even have to take out a personal loan for it. Well, I don't know. Man, it's an investment in your future health. Oh, once I said that, then he could see it, an investment in my future health. Now it was worth it to go take out a personal loan for the $1,200 to get the phototherapy device, which of course is vegan. A D supplement is my second option. My first option is always a phototherapy device, like I said, which is vegan, and it makes D3 if you get the right one. Don't get the cheapy one, you know, like, you know, like some tanning beds will not make D, D in your skin. Uh-huh, that's good to know. I went to my healthcare pr practitioner and uh, got my vitamin D test back. I wanted to get the supplement and figure out which one to get. And uh, he explained the different kinds that, okay, well, you can get this and whatever it would be, 5,000 IUs or whatever, D3. And he was talking about how important D3 was. D3 is very important. It's uh, It helps to be available and all that good stuff. And then he's like, well, you could do 50,000 I use, you could take it once a week, and I could get that for a prescription and insurance will cover that. I'm like, well, all right, that sounds okay. So I got the prescription filled. I realized on the ticket there, you wrote vitamin D, and I'm like, well, that's interesting because it wasn't specifically D3. I didn't really know completely what the difference was besides what he was talking about with me. So I filled it and I got it back and it said D2 on it. I was like, how come this has D2? And I called back and I was like, you just told me that pretty much D2 is junk. How come this is 
D2, you know? And so they're like, oh, well, it's so much that it should be able to be absorbed and it should help you to raise the levels. Uh, do you think 50,000 IUs would raise the levels? Of D2? No, and that's not really... One of the problems I have with that recommendation of 50,000 once a week is actually some of those prescription Ds are D3. And it's just a ridiculous idea to take 50,000 units of D3 at any point in time. It doesn't matter if you only do it once a week. Because when you're out there sunning yourself, when your body has made enough D for the day, your body turns itself off. It turns off the D-making mechanism so it doesn't overproduce D. So once, once it gets up to about 10,000 units, and there's some you know, discrepancy here and there. There's different opinions on what that number is when it gets up to it, when it turns off. So 50,000 just seems like a lot. And it would just, it just makes more sense. So people don't have a problem, first of all, taking something on a daily basis. In fact, some people find it easier to take a supplement on a daily basis, seven days a week, than remembering to try and take it one day a week. So you take in nutrients. How do you take in nutrients? Do you take, do you eat once a week? Well, no one does. You're taking in nutrients on a daily basis. But let's just talk about D because D is not a food provided nutrient. Are you taking D once a week? Do you go outside only once a week and stay inside in a windowless room for the rest of the six days? No, you're getting D. You should be getting D every day. We're designed to get D every day. So instead of 50,000 once a week, five or 6,000 units every day. And for that, it would, you know, D3. You'd have to take a lot more if it was D2. And again, there's, you know, D2 is also cheaper to produce than D3. That could be another reason why he gave you that prescription because D2 is cheaper because it's just less expensive to produce. And then the pharmacist says something like, well, all right, he probably had you do the 50,000 IUs because it would be taken on my thing uh, and stored in the liver and then distributed out. And I was like, that's interesting. It just sounds like a theory that she kind of came up with. But what do you think about that? Well, again, like I say, uh, the way I try and do it, I don't have a multi-million dollar lab in my basement to be able to verify and vet these things. In fact, I don't even have a basement. I live in a motorhome. Um, but so I can only use the tools in my toolbox. So what I try and do is say, you know, let me try and get as close to nature as possible. So as far as D, well, easy. Let me get out every day in the sun during the time of year when the sun is capable of making D in my skin. Let me just do that and not say, well, I'll get out, you know, on the weekend. And for the other five days, even though it's July, for the other five days, I'll take a D supplement. No, this is an investment in my future health. I'm going to invest not just the money in this case, but the time to go out there and sun myself every day horizontally and get, you know, enough vitamin D. So if, that, but if I have to then take a supplement, all right, how can I do this as close to nature as possible? Let me take, let's say it's 6,000 I use, uh, if that'll keep me, you know, uh, maintained. Let me do that every day because I would be going out every day. Let me treat the body the same way. If it gets sun exposure every day, let me give it the vitamin D in supplement form every day, not once a week. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's counterintuitive when you, when you factor in nature. The reasons the pharmaceutical industry is do it that way, they have different reasons. And maybe to get D2 to work that way, they have to give you a boatload of it. But again, the, the bottom line is, did, did that doctor say, okay, I want you to take this for two months, this prescription, and then come back and do your D test again? Did he say to come back to, to a follow up? Yeah, there was a lot of question marks in my head after I left that whole experience. So is there a food source of vitamin D for vegans or raw vegans? Does one exist? Well, in a word, no. There, there is a D3 supplement that is supposed to be vegan. And I talk about this in my article on cancer and vitamin D on my website. But no, we're supposed to get our D from the sun. So some people would say, well, wait a second, that's not accurate. You know, if you just ask the general question, is, can you get D from food? 
Well, yeah, there's some D, naturally occurring D in fish, for example, but first of all, it's not enough to resolve a D insufficiency or, or deficiency, and it's usually not enough to maintain an optimal level of uh, D, especially if D, your D demand is higher than it would have been many millennia ago. And, and D is added to milk products, um, but milk products are low in magnesium, so that's not really a, a good way to get D in. And let's be real, 4, 400 IUs of D, which was the standard for the longest time, which is the amount that you'll likely get from using dairy consumption, is not going to resolve a D insufficiency or even maintain an optimal level. It will just prevent the worst case scenario of a D deficiency disease. And that's what a lot of people in the medical industry work on or in government. Well, let's just add just enough to prevent the worst case scenario of things because we don't want to put enough in that will prevent all problems associated with lowish D, you know, with a D insufficiency versus a deficiency, um, like a strong enough immune system. So a food source of D for vegans, no. So you're saying some fish. I do read sometimes the Weston A. Price, Nourishing Traditions. Like, it's very interesting to me to hear about the other perspectives. They talk about cod liver oil. I know that was a big thing back, you know, early in the 1900s. Is that something that you would ever recommend? Well, no, and I'll tell you the reason why. I look at it this way. If someone says, yeah, but here's the benefits of cod liver oil, or here's the benefits of garlic, or here's the benefits of cayenne pepper, or here's the benefits of whatever they're going to tell me. I like to look at it as, okay, there are some detriments there. Now, can we get the benefits of cod liver oil or garlic or whatever from something else that has none of the detriments of cod liver oil or garlic or whatever? That's the first way I like to look at something. I'm not going to argue that there isn't the benefits because a lot of times there are, but there are detriments. Okay, so in other words, you could say, well, there are benefits to, I don't know, using a barbiturate to calm yourself down. Well, yeah, certainly there is less stress. Your body will use less uh, B12 and, and keep that in reserve, and that's wonderful. But now let's talk about the detrimental effects of, of taking barbiturates because there are some. So you can, you can get the benefits of cod liver oil without the detriments of cod liver oil by eating the diet you're designed to eat and being active enough to warrant eating enough food to get you enough of the EFAs, uh, omega-3s and omega-6s. And do you know offhand what would be the detriments of cod liver oil? Well, first of all, any oil is not a healthy thing to consume. So people say, well, yeah, you don't want canola oil, but you do want cold processed, extra, 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 extra virgin olive oil. That's okay to add in, not, not cook with it, you know, raw food, put it on your salad. It, it's an oil. It kind of gums up the work. Um, you do need essential fatty acids. All oil is, all fat is, is a way of giving your body enough of the essential fatty acids, three, six, and nines, that your body needs to get from your food. And that's what food is. All food is, is a transport mechanism for nutrients. And, and, the, and nutrients will not just be vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients and rare earth elements, but also water is a nutrient, fiber is a nutrient, proteins is a nutrient, um, essential fatty acids are nutrients. They all come under the heading of nutrients. The only thing that's not really considered a nutrient are, are carbohydrates because that's a fuel. So you need fuel and you need nutrients. There's one fuel we designed for to work on best. We can work on other fuels like you can put other fuels in your car's gas tank. And it'll, like I said before, it'll run. Not as well, not for as long, but it'll run. And we could do that. You can live on nothing but avocados. If you need 2,000 calories a day, you can eat 2,000 calories a day of avocado and get your, your calories from fat inst instead of carbohydrate. You can do it, but now there's detriments to doing that. So can you get 2,000 calories a day from something else that has none of the detriments of eating 2,000 calories a day of avocado? Sure, 2,000 calories a day of 
fruit and a variety of fruit. Now we're getting better and better and, and a variety of tropical fruit. Now we're even getting better than that. You know, so I, I like to go for best because I know that things have a bad, fair, good, better, and best that you can associate with anything. You pick anything in life, whether it's food or a car or a music system, iPod, um, there's bad, fair, good, better, and best. I like to go for the best when you're talking about things that affect your most valuable commodity, which is your future health. When you go for best, you want to go outside, definitely. You were talking about, you know, of course, there's some sort of obstacle to getting outside, absorbing the sunlight. You're talking about uh, a light box. Uh, but before that, tanning beds, are, is there such a thing as therapeutic tanning beds that where you can actually absorb uh, vitamin D? Well, yeah, well, the tanning beds, they have to have the right UV spectrum in order to make D in your skin. What comes from the sun is a wide spectrum of rays. You, you get rays that are heat, and you can feel that on your skin. There's visible light that, that allows you to see, but those don't have anything to do with making vitamin D in your skin. There's a certain wavelength of light rays that will make D in your skin, and there's ones that'll cause you know, tanning also that don't make D. You would think, well, why would the inventor of the sun do it that way? Well, who knows? You know, that's just the way it is. And it's not a big deal if you go out in the sun. It doesn't make any difference that this set of rays will make D and this set of rays will tan you. You don't care. If you just go out in the sun, you'll get appropriate amount of tan and you'll get an appropriate amount of D. It's when we stop doing that, that we have to think about things. So when people say, look, I can't get out into the sun in July, so I'm just going to take a D supplement and that I'm going to keep covered. I'm going to make sure I get at least 50 milligrams, uh, nanograms per milliliter of vitamin D, you know, when I go for my test, 50. Oh, well, that's fine. But the sun also, when it shines through your skin, it has a disinfectant uh, property on blood and lymph. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, see, so now, so that's, and you're not going to get that from a supplement. So there's the reason to get out in the sun. So if you, that's why I say my first option is not a supplement. It's a tanning bed for the home or, or going to a, a commercial tanning bed. But, you know, now you have to be careful because what kind of light bulbs are they using in the tanning bed in the, in the place that you go to? Because it's called a tanning place. It's not called a, you know, vitamin D store. It, it's, it's the tanning store, right? You go, you're going there to get a tan for looks, most people, for looks purposes. Now, some people say, yeah, no, I want vitamin D. And they try to ask the person behind the counter, do your tanning beds, beside tanning, do they make vitamin D? Um, I'll have to ask the manager. You know, they don't know. Um, yeah, manager says yes. Meanwhile, if you go over to the machine, you take down the model of the machine and you go on the internet. You can even do it right there if you have a smartphone, right? And you look at the machine as if you're going to buy it. And it says, okay, it's $20,000. And wavelength, wavelength, wavelength. Oh, look, it doesn't make D. In fact, it says it right here. No, not for the therapeutic use for making vitamin D. And then you go over and you show that. I've had a client who did that, went over and showed that to the manager. And the manager's like, well, that's not what I was told. Yeah, but this is your model there that you got. I took it right over the thing. Oh, yeah. So you, again, uh, you know, uh, an educated consumer is is a very important thing. You need to be an educated consumer. So you have to make sure. So that's one of the things you can do is copy down the make and the model of the bed in your tanning place in your neighborhood that you're thinking of going to. Don't rely on what the manager tells you because if the manager says, well, do you want it to make D in your skin? Yes. Okay, it does. You know, you don't know. You don't know what they're going to say. They Maybe they work on commission. If they work on commission, they're going to tell you it does whatever you want it to do. Um, so you can just Google that and find out if the machine has the wavelength to make it. If you buy your own, yeah. Now, if you if it's a therapeutic tanning uh, device, a phototherapy device, yeah, that's, that's why it's made. It's made to make vitamin D in your skin. The bulb will tan you a little bit, but it's really made to make vitamin D. You might not even get, you know, 
a, a tan from it. But it's because it, it's and in the United States, the way the FDA does things, you have to have a, a prescription to be able to buy one of those because it's going to produce D in your skin. And that's one of the reasons why tanning places don't get the machines with the bulbs that make D in the skin because they would have to apply for those or get a I don't know how they do it, but and that's why it's a tanning place. So you're better off checking to make sure that they got it, that the machine at your tanning place will make D in the skin. And if not, just save up to get your own. Now, you can also get one not for $1,200. You can get one for $400. It's smaller, and you have to do yourself in sections, and it's going to take a lot more time. But again, it's made to make vitamin D in your skin, and it's a vegan way of doing it. And for people living in places far away from the equator, like in, you know, the northern area of the United States and certainly in Canada, yeah, you definitely should be getting one of those things. And if you can save up and get the one that's the full-length one for 1200 bucks, and you put that on your ceiling, then you put a towel out on the floor and you lie. I had a client who they put a towel on the floor, poured sand on the towel, put another towel on top of that sand, and lied there and put a fan on them and played music of being at the beach and they had a pina colada, not, not a real pina colada, but of course. And they're like, okay, now I'm at the beach and it was in the heart of December in Canada and they were doing this and they were happy as a clam doing this. Oh, that's so fun. What is the wavelength that you need for the tanning bed? Well, that's, that's something I remember off the top of my head. I just know that it exists. Um, I realized that the amount of room in my brain to fill up with information is finite and I don't want to take a chance on filling it up with so much stuff that's not really that important to know that I get to a point where I can't remember anything anymore. The bottom line for knowing on a tanning bed, if it's making D in your skin, is test before you start using it. And then after two months of using the, the particular tanning bed that you're going to, test again. If your 25-hydroxyvitamin D level didn't budge at all, then I don't care what the manager told you. It's not making any D in your skin and go find another tanning place. You're talking about the photo devices. Are the tanning beds the same thing or are they different? No, again, no. Most of, most of the tanning beds, when they were first being designed and, and sold to places, they were tanning salons and it was just to tan you and they were not making any vitamin D in the skin. Now, some more upscale tanning salons that have a, a clientele that are more educated that have been coming in to say, well, does your tanning bed, do they make vitamin D also? Now they want to be able to say yes. They want to honestly be able to say yes, and they don't want to lie because they know people can test their vitamin D levels. So now when they're setting up new tanning places or replacing their old equipment, they're likely to go for the more expensive bulbs. It's really just the bulb that does it. It's, it's not anything else in the unit. They'll get the more expensive bulbs that'll add the wavelengths in that make also will make vitamin D. What you can buy for the home is something that's like a, a tanning bed. It's not as big or as bulky. It's just it's very small, and you can put it up against the wall and stand in front of it, or you can put it on the ceiling and lie underneath it. Um, and it's full length. It's six foot long. The bulbs are six foot bulbs. Or you can get a small little box. It's as big as two Kleenex boxes put together. And But you have to shine this on your head area and then on your chest area and then on your legs you know, so you have to do it in sections because it's not, it's not six foot long. It's, it's maybe, you know, eight inches long. Uh, and it's a, again, designed specifically to make vitamin D. And I have a link to the small one, the $400 one, and a link to the $1,200 one in my article on um, vitamin D, which is called Cancer Prevention and Vitamin D, which is on my website. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. Thank you. So can you describe where one should be located latitudinally uh, for optimal sunlight absorption for the body to make vitamin D in the wintertime in the northern hemisphere? Because I've heard a few different points, like anything south of Philadelphia, and I've also heard anything south of Atlanta. What, what is correct? How could we know for sure? Great question, how to know for sure. 
Simply, simply test your D at the start of winter and then again two months later to see if where you're living, what is it capable of doing where you're living. Um, in general, if the sun can't burn you, it can't make any D in your skin. Not, not, any, not any meaningful amounts anyway. But of course, you can't use this as a test. <laughs> well, yeah, I was able to get burnt. Okay, I'm good to go. No, 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 no. You don't want to do that. You want to avoid burning like the plague. Uh, now, I don't like to give definitive latitudes or to make pat recommendations like some people have heard, such as, quote, you know, get 20 minutes of sunshine between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., unquote. And that's it. Because these generalizations do not take into account all the variables besides latitude, such as skin tone, cloud cover, time of day, time of year, sufficiency of D's companion nutrients in your body, and most important, your body's demand for D. So this is why I'm a big advocate of testing and monitoring in, in your area until you get a good idea of what you can expect to get in the way of D where you're living. Do you think UV index could be any good indicator on whether we could create vitamin D? The UV index is good, but it's usually only reported during the summer months when it's possible to get a burn. So, when, when, look, when the sun is shining through a lot of atmosphere, as it does during the winter months, its visible rays do penetrate, of course, but the, again, the UV rays that make the are cut way down. So we call that time of year when the sun isn't able to make any meaningful amounts of D in your skin, it's called your vitamin D winter, quote-unquote. So in general, the closer you get to the equator, the smaller your vitamin D winter is. And conversely, the further away you are from the equator, the longer your vitamin D winter is. And I've not found yet a good website that shows like a world map with, with accurate vitamin D winter info. So you can't go by that. Again, the UV index, you're only going to get it you know, when it's during burning season. Also, and this is very important, the notion that you can stock up on D during your vitamin D summer to get you through your vitamin D winter, I think I mentioned this before, it's not true, and it's promoted by those educators who are um, philosophically against supplements in general, and, and, it's, and it's one of those memes that really frost my cookies because it doesn't work. That's why I've had clients who decided to test. You know, they they did their vitamin D summer, you know, they got the summer and now that now the sun is starting to shine through too much atmosphere and they can feel it. You can kind of feel it, you know, it just doesn't feel warm on your skin. And they test and they go, good, good. I'm at 55. This is, this is great. And then they do nothing. They don't take any supplements. They don't buy a phototherapy device and they go through their vitamin D winter, which could be, you know, it could be six months. It could be four months. In this particular case, it was four months. They came out the other end, and before they started sunning themselves again, they did another vitamin D test. Like, ooh, it dropped way down, 32. Now, I know 32 is within that 30 to uh, 100 range, but again, that's not optimal. So it, it didn't carry them through. So, But some people say, yes, that's carrying you through if you go by that passable range of 30 to 100. But I, look, if I'm out in the sun every day in the tropics, it's always going to be above 50 always so I, i'm guessing that's what our bodies are designed for you know and yeah you're gonna have some cloudy days in the tropics but not six months worth of cloudy days so say we're outside of vitamin d winter what would be an appropriate way for well of course anybody but especially children and babies to absorb sunlight to make vitamin d so that we don't burn them, and do you ever recommend sunscreen at all? Yeah, I mean, if you're out in the sun, and you'll get to a point, just like with food, you'll get to a point eventually where you won't decide what to eat, but you'll leave it up to your body. So you'll, you'll feel hungry, but you'll feel for hung hungry for something specific. So you'll feel hungry, and you'll start looking around, like, 
no, that's not really appealing to me. That's not talking to me. Ooh, that looks good. That mango looks good. You're, now you're just really listening to your body. It's not really has, it doesn't have anything to do with what you want. You'll also get to that point when you're sunning yourself, when you're really healthy, you'll be lying out there in the sun and assuming you're not, I don't recommend being on the phone. I certainly don't recommend reading a book, even listening to music. You can get so caught up in music sometimes that you lie out there too long. And certainly being in a conversation with somebody at the beach, I've even gotten burned a little bit by being in a really heated conversation with somebody at the beach and didn't realize how long I was. But if you're just lying there, you know, horizontal in, in your tan through bathing suit, soaking it up, you'll feel at some point your body will say, eh, that's enough. And you'll flip over, you know, to do the other side. And then after a while, your body will say, it's eh, enough. You'll, you'll just feel it. It's very subtle, but you'll feel it. Now, if you have to remain out in the sun at the beach, let's say you, you're there with friends or your kids and you have to remain out there after your body has said, eh, it's enough. Meaning if you didn't do something, you're going to get burnt. Well, yeah, sunscreen is my second option. And there is kind of a healthy sunscreen. It's like kind of the only one. I have it listed on my website on that article about uh, D and vitamin D. Um, but my, what's my first option? Well, covering up. Bring a long sleeve, lightweight shirt with you. Bring a hat with a wide brim with you. So, and that's what I do. After I've got enough sun wearing my little skimpy bikini bathing suit and my body goes, that's eh, enough. I'll just take out of my backpack or whatever I brought with me, the shirt, the wide brim hat, and I'll look like a geek for the rest of the time I'm going to be at the beach there. Like, oh, what's covering up? You, one guy said, you shouldn't cover up like that. You need sun. You need sun. I said, I've had an hour of it here already. I don't want to burn. That's why I put it all on. Oh, okay. Yeah, good idea, man. And this guy's cherry red. He's just getting burnt to a crisp. And he's lecturing me on the need to uh, have sunshine. But anyway, um, so that's, uh, that's my first option is cover up. Um, so that you're comfortable. And then the second one would be sunscreen. Now for kids, you can't get kids to cover up for anything. You know, cause they're running around, the clothes are falling off all over the place. Wide, wide brimmed hat for a kid. Forget about it. So for them, yes, you need some kind of sunscreen for the kids. So use a good one. There was a time when it should have uh, PABA and then it shouldn't have PABA and then it should have this and it shouldn't have that. They've cut it down to a science now where what you can use to block the burning rays without presenting too much of a toxic load to the body or hardly any actually so there is one it's out there i've tried making one too with coconut oil and zinc oxide and stuff like that and i think zinc oxide would be the one to make sure that that's an ingredient that's okay and not detrimental right yeah essentially that's what this one is it's um oh, what's the name of the company that makes it Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. But it's like I researched all the ones that are out there, and this is the one that I would use if, if I had to use it. And, you know, I always bring it with me. I never end up using it, but it's there and other people. I say, hey, dude, you need to put this on um, because you're starting to get pink. Uh, so, and that's the one. And But again, to make sure you're not absorbing, the skin is a very absorbent organ. It's like a sponge. So it's best not to put anything on it, not to clog pores up with oils or anything. So that's why the covering up thing is, is the best thing to do. It's more, of, it's more of a pain in the neck, but, you know, it's a, an investment in your future health. Now, but, but you, you asked about kids. Now, you did ask about kids. I don't think I answered that. Um, so, yeah, they can and should be out in the sun. But just as with adults, the, the parents have to be careful to not allow the, the kids uh, to burn. And so kids, depending on where you live, they may have to take a D supplement during their vitamin D winter. For kids, in other words, kids who live, uh, I have clients in Canada, yeah, their kids have to take it because doesn't matter if they're out all day. During their vitamin D winter, the sun isn't making any vitamin D and they need it all year round, especially as a growing child, especially when the bones are, 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 are forming. You know, uh, that's why children get rickets 
but adults with fully formed bones don't get rickets from a vitamin D deficiency. They, they get other issues. Um, so yeah, kids, you got to be very careful and make sure they get enough without getting burnt. Your article would be a great one to read online. Is there a good link? Do you know the link offhand or you just go to your website? Well, you go to my website, you can go to the main article section and scroll down. It's one of the first ones because it's one of the most important ones. Uh, and it'll say cancer prevention and vitamin D. It's quite comprehensive and it's, it's very helpful to read. Um, so you're at health101, that's 101.org, is that right? That's correct. To move on from vitamin D, another nutrient that is in low supply for vegans is B12. Could you explain why that is? Uh, sure. A B12 is normally made in the body. It is the result of microbacteria doing their thing. Um, so th this is why it's not really a vitamin. It's, but we'd have to put it in the classification all by itself. So we call it just vitamin B12. Um, but it's important to understand that there are lifestyle practices that can interfere with the body producing B12. So irritants like garlic, spicy foods, pepper, coffee, tea, alcohol, and certainly antibiotics will curtail B12 production on the part of the body. Now, we don't need a lot. I mean, what we would need in a year would certainly fit inside a thimble, um, but we, we do need what we need. And those things I just mentioned, which a lot of raw food is still used. You, know, you can have garlic and spicy foods and, and, and pepper and, uh, in a raw food diet, uh, and they do use them, and it just prevents the body from making B12. And, I, and our body's ability to make B12, even without those interferences, can also be affected by genetics. I've found that to be true also. So all, th all things considered, it's no wonder that without supplementation, people can have a B12 insufficiency or a deficiency. And I should say that there's a, people hear me use those two terms. There is a difference. Uh, defi a deficiency is something where you're, you are noticed of it. In other words, you will manifest some kind of symptoms and when you realize, oh, something's wrong. But you can have a B12 insufficiency where you don't really notice anything, but there's damage being done. Now, of the people that I've tested, the only ones who are doing kind of okay with B12 are some of the people who would eat foods that are fortified with B12. In other words, a lot of the products that come in boxes, bottles, or cans that people eating the typical Western diet eat have B12 fortified in them. B12 gets sprayed on cereal as the cereal is going into the box. So even people who eat animal products, if they're eating very little processed food that are fortified with B12, they can have a B12 deficiency. So contrary to popular belief, eating animal products doesn't supply enough B12. So I'll just throw that out there right now. Uh, raw vegans tend to eat no processed products, of course, but they sometimes do eat things that interfere with their body making B12 that I mentioned. Um, and this is why many vegans that I've tested are low in B12. And as I said, there's that information that you hear, those memes from some of the uh, practitioners. Well, don't bother, you know, testing until you manifest symptoms. That's just a really bad idea. That's bad advice. Um, being that we know this is the case, this should be something that you, you should test for in advance so you can catch it before it gets from an insufficiency to a deficiency. Mm -hmm. Vitamin D as well. And make sure you don't overdo it with these vitamins. Is that right? Well, yeah. Now, some are more important to not overdo it. Um, D, as I said, is a fat-soluble vitamin, so you can overdo D. There was a company that made vitamin D drops, and they messed up in their production. So it was 10 times the amount that was written on the bottle, and people were getting vitamin D overdoses. But you can't overdose, you cannot overdose on B12. You can take the whole bottle and nothing is going to happen. 
Why do we need B12? Um, well, I just spoke about the supply side of the issue regarding B12. Now, on the demand side, the more stressed you are, the more B12 your body is going to use. So that's that's main. That's a, that's a huge thing there. So if you've just dealt with an extremely stressful situation, I mean the ultimate stressful situation, you've lost a loved one and you've been grieving, you definitely should get your vitamin D, uh, B12 level checked after something like that. And our lives in modern times can actually be more stressful when you think about it than they would have been many millennia ago. So it's possible that some people today can need more B12 than their bodies can make, that, that the human body was designed to be able to make. And, and, and this is assuming they consume nothing that interferes with B12 production. So this is another reason why B12 can be in short supply. Um, you know, think about it. Um, if you've ever seen a herd of zebra and they're out there grazing in the field, and a lion runs into their midst suddenly and, and, and grabs one of them, downs them, and starts eating one of the zebra, what, are the, what do the rest of the zebra do? They don't keep running and hide behind trees and freak out and talk about it for the rest of the day. No, they just stop in their tracks because they know instinctively that the lion will not be, is not in any danger to them anymore and won't be for another couple of days because he's just fed. But what do we do? When you're driving and someone cuts you off on the highway, and you, you got some choice words for the person, you don't just let it go. You end up talking about it for the rest of the day. You know what happened to me today? This is a stupid, you cut me off on the highway. I thought something. Right? So we, we tend to hang on to stress when, you know, we really shouldn't. And there's, you know, there's courses you can take and people you can counsel with in order to deal with stress reduction. And it's really important because stress just eats up, gobbles up B12. B12 is kind of like the neurological vitamin or neurological nutrient. So the less stressed you are, the less B12 you'll need. So the idea is to be no more stressed than you would have been many millennia ago. B12 in whole food sources? Where do people usually find it? Well, contrary to what some people teach, B12 is not meant to come from food. It doesn't come from food in the, in the, in the quantities that we would need. Now, sure, there may be some B12 and probably is on unwashed greens, but not, a, not enough to supply us with what we require. So people will say, no, I purposely don't, don't wash any of my greens because I want to take advantage of the B12. Uh, that's it. No, that's not, that little bit is not going to do it. So we, yes, we've always gotten it from that when we've eaten from the wild, but that's not what we're designed to get it from. It won't produce enough. That, so that little bit is not going to cut it. So where would people usually historically get it from? The amounts we need, like I said before, our bodies are designed to produce it as long as we're not doing the things that interfere with its production. And of course, many, many millennia ago, hundreds of thousands, we didn't eat garlic. We didn't eat spicy foods. We didn't, there was no alcohol to consume, uh, coffees, teas, things like that. We just ate like other animals eat out in the wild. So our bodies were able to make B12. Today, there are these things that we can do, like eating things with garlic, that just make it impossible for our bodies to produce enough B12. So even though some people live in societies where it's normal to have some garlic with their food, from the body's perspective, garlic is not a normal thing to consume and it will interfere with B12 production. So that's why a lot of people come up with B12 deficiencies. And that's, again, on the sub supply side, but the demand side can also be the other uh, part of the coin there where they're just requiring more B12 because of they're leading a very stressful life. They're, they're one paycheck away from losing their home or their car or something. So that's, you know, basically fruits and veggies are not a source for B12 for humans. So what kind of vitamin B12 supplementation would you recommend? Well, yeah, if you do test for, a B, for your B12 status and you're found to have a B12 insufficiency or deficiency, then you absolutely should take a B12 supplement. 
But, but again, like I said before, I, I wouldn't wait for symptoms to appear. Mm -hmm. So one personal story, when I was supplementing with the sublingual B12 tablets of methylcobalamin for several months before I got my first B12 test done, the normal range for B12 is 193 to 982. My B12 level was at about 2300. And so apparently I was able to absorb the B12 supplement quite well, at least I assume. Do you know of any issues or side effects from having high levels of B12? Well, I, I do recommend getting tested, but I, I, I recommend getting tested before you start supplementing, and there are very good reasons for this. Th there's another piece of advice from a raw food educator who has a popular book, and I think I've mentioned this before, where he says, quote, if you think you have a B12 deficiency, sure, take some B12, unquote. But that's very bad advice. You should, you should never just take some B12 if you think you have a B12 deficiency. If you, if you think you have a B12 deficiency, you should do a B12 status test, and this is for two reasons. Number one, it, you want to know if you are actually have a B12 deficiency, because if in reality you don't and your self-diagnosis is wrong, and if you start taking B12, it's not going to help your problem. You're going to be spending time pursuing a remedy that's not addressing what's really wrong, and this could allow whatever is wrong to get worse. The second point is this. If you do have a B12 deficiency, well, how will you know how much to take unless you know how deep the deficiency is? If your deficiency is severe but you didn't test, so you don't know, but you know you have a B12, and you only take 1,000 micrograms a day, this will not resolve the deficiency, even though you might think it is doing that. And, and so keep in mind that a, a B12 deficiency is not something to fool around with because the damage, which will be neurological, it can be permanent. So this is the one thing where you won't be able to just recover from, like just about everything else that we could have, like from D deficiencies, iodine deficiencies. So it's not a good idea to assume you're okay or assume you need to take some. We should always test, and you should do the correct test. The, the test that you did is a B12 blood test that measures how much B12 is in your blood. But that doesn't tell you how well your body is utilizing B12. So I've had clients that have had uh, the B12 in that range, in the, in, in the okay reference range, but then when I convinced them to take uh, the methylmalonic acid test, which is the gold standard for B12 utilization assessment, uh, their, their MMA was too high. Now, there's only one reason your MMA is going to be high, and that's because your body is not utilizing B12 properly. So regardless if your B12 blood test is in the okay range, uh, you should have the MMA test done. In fact, you, don't, you shouldn't even bother with the, the blood B12 test because it really is irrelevant in many ways, unless you just want to use it for statistical research purposes. Many of my clients have tested low at the low end of the okay range of B12, yet their MMA was way too high. It should be, it should be zero or as close to zero as you can, you know, uh, can, can get it. Um, but th that's why the MMA test is the gold standard. But again, interesting, that's not what the medical establishment uses to, to test for B12. I mentioned my methylcobalamin. Would you recommend methylcobalamin? Um, I know that there's cyanocobalamin. Um, what would you recommend? Yeah, they're all different forms of B12 and different ways to take it. I would not recommend swallowing it. That, that doesn't work for a lot of people, so don't even bother because you can do an under the tongue. Uh, plus, if you swallow it, you, you need enough of what's called the intrinsic factor. Your body needs to be producing enough of something called the intrinsic factor. It's a protein. If it isn't, what you swallow isn't going to be used. So just to circumvent all that, if you put it under your tongue, which is a sublingual form, you don't need any um, intrinsic factor to deal with that. It gets absorbed right into the bloodstream. And of the uh, and, and that's also a, the other way to get it is through an injection. But the only reason to get an injection is if you go to the doctor's office, he does a test, 
and you're right there when he comes back and says, oh my God, the reason why your, your hands are shaking is because you have a severe B12 deficiency. Sit right there and you get an injection. You don't have time to fool around with something going under your tongue because you need a, a very large amount. Uh, but I know people who just take B12 injections as their daily B12 instead of putting it under their tongue. And if they knew what I know, that they would never do that because every time you pierce the skin, alarm bells go off. I mean, it's like being in a fire station when they get a fire call and all those alarm bells go off. Uh, every time you pierce the skin with needle or knife, and I was told this by a, a doctor, he goes, avoid it if, if you at all possibly can. So injections, no, only in case of emergencies. Uh, the, then there's the different forms, the methylcobalamin, cyanocobalamin, adeno, there's a bunch of different ones. Most people do just fine on methylcobalamin and there's no cyanide component to it. So that's the one of choice to use. But again, you test. You test first. Oh, I'm low. Let me take some of this and make sure it's going to work for me. Then you test again a month later. Yeah, it worked for me. So you just want to make absolutely sure. Most probably the sublingual B12s, at least the one that I recommend. I'm not saying there can't, there could be ones out there or there can't be ones out there that don't work. Yeah, there could be companies making B12 and it says there's 2,000 micrograms in it and there isn't. There's two micrograms in it, which is not going to help you. So you know that if you get the, uh, the ones that I recommend, I recommend them because I know they work because I, my clients have used them and we've tested and followed up to make sure that they work. You can't overdose on it. Like I said before, if you take it and you're, you get the, the B12 blood test like the one you did and your MMA is very low or at zero, well, you're just simply taking too much and you're wasting your money. So it's just important. Like at 2,000 some odd, whatever yours was, I think it was very, very high. Um, yeah, I'd be shocked if your MMA was also very high. I would be willing to bet it would be low or at zero. But again, you don't know in, unless you test. So that would be the test to do. But you can't convince doctors to do it. Sometimes they'll, they've never heard of it. And if you can get them to look in their list of tests that's available to them, they're like, oh, look at that. There it is. And, you, and, and the way you get them to do it, by the way, is to explain well, Doc, I know the test that you're recommending to me is just the normal B12 blood test, but I eat a lot of um, kelp and dulse, and those are dried sea vegetables, and when you, dry the, when you dry them, the B12 that they're a good source of become analogs. In other words, they resemble B12, but they don't function as B12 in the body, so you, the test you're telling me to take will show those, which could give you a false reading, but if you do the MMA test... That, that just shows you how well your body is utilizing B12 in general. So it's a much better test for someone like me who is taking in a lot of these B12 analogs from the dried seed vegetables. Now, if he doesn't listen to you, then you just got to find somebody else because that's like the most compelling science-based um, case you can make for getting the MMA test versus the SB12 test. That's very important to know. And so you must have an article about B12 that you've written? Do I have an article? <laughs> yes, I'm fond for trying to make do-it-yourself articles that are very in detailed and that if you do your due diligence and read them, and maybe you have to read them more than once, but it has all the information in there to self-assess self and self-correct for D and B12. I wasn't able to make one for iodine, and we can talk about why that is because it's very important. But for D and B12, it's kind of a no-brainer. The only way you can go wrong with B12 is if you don't take enough. Thank you for talking about B12. Um, and to move on with um, to iodine, and I say iodine, iodine, I know. I know you've done a lot of intense research lately on iodine. Could you tell us about that research and what sources you've been reading? Sure. Uh, but first, I want to explain why I say iodine and when other people say iodine. iodine. It's, not really, it's not really tomato, tomato. 
it's not it's not a case of tomato tomato. What it is is there's um, if you look at the periodic table of the elements and you look where you'll find iodine, it's with chlorine, bromine, fluorine. It's in that family of, 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 of halogens. And, and that's how they're pronounced. Chlorine, fluorine, bromine, iodine, they're all the same. But there's also their counterparts. It's kind of another form of them called the halides. Chloride, fluoride, bromide, iodide, ending in I-D-E instead of I-N-E. So what what the medical establishment figured out is, okay, we need both both forms, iodine and iodide, with a D at the end. So we'll put them together in a thing called Lugol solution. This was about 90 years ago when medical doctors were prescribing this, and you can actually get this to deal with issues like thyroid issues. So what will we call it? We'll mix those two words, iodine and iodide, and call it iodine. So it's not a real thing, but I know what people mean when they say it, but I just like to be accurate. I'm like Mr. Spock on Star Trek. I endeavor to be accurate, Captain. Um, now, over the years, I've done a lot of research on iodine, and I've counseled many people where I found iodine insufficiencies and deficiencies. And there have been many books written on the subject, um, and there are many advocates for testing your iodine status and many success stories of resolving semi-serious and, and serious conditions once you get whole body tissue sufficiency of iodine, once you get that restored. But you can also find, if you're going to do your own research on this prior to working with an iodine literate practitioner, you can find iodine fails on the internet if you look for them. Just type in iodine fails and you'll find a whole bunch of them. And this might lead you to believe that it's insane to actually take iodine. But there's always a reason for those fails and it's not the taking of iodine. Uh, iodine is a nutrient. We need it. It's supposed to be in our food. We require it. And like anything else, if you're eating food that's lacking enough chromium, what do you have to do? You have to, your body needs what it needs. It can't just say, okay, you're not giving me enough. I'll adapt. No, we, ha we don't have unlimited ability to adapt to uh, unnatural scenarios. And nutrients are one of them. Your body needs what it needs for optimal health. And uh, there's just not enough iodine in the, in the, um, in the foods there. And plus, our, that's the supply side. Look at the demand side. And we're needing more iodine because of what we're exposed to that cause things like breast cancer and well, um, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome and things like this. And personally, I just have to be honest with you because I'm an honest person. I'm sick and tired of people who know nothing about an issue behaving like they know everything about it just because they've read a few posts and because they how they feel about taking a supplement in general. It's so distressing seeing all the anti-raw food info that's out there and the anti-nutritional supplement info info that's out on the uh, on the internet uh, because of what I know. So I just have to share that distressment with people. So what is iodine and why is it important? Well, iodine is an essential nutrient, meaning that we can't make it. It's got to come from our food. And it's in very short supply in the foods that we buy at the store. Uh, and because of its antibiotic, antiviral, antimicrobial, and anti-cancer properties, all natural properties, by the way, in other words, its, its antibiotic properties are not like the antibiotics you get from a doctor. Those antibiotics can't differentiate between good and bad bacteria. They're just going to go in there and just wreak holy havoc. But the antibiotic properties of iodine, when it's used by your immune system, is specific. It's not going to damage the good bacteria, just the bad bacteria. Uh, because of how much iodine is in use by the immune system, our bodies probably need a lot more of it today than we did many millennia ago because of what we're exposed to today. Uh, and about 90 years ago, when it was discovered that the reason people had swollen thyroids, which is located in your neck, it's a condition called goiter, so your neck is just enlarged, was because of a deficiency of iodine. And, and when this was discovered, it was decreed by the government that, okay, 
the way to deal with this is let's add iodine to the food supply because obviously this is why people are, in other words, the medical industry tried to cure it, but the cure is iodine. So, and, and you can't patent it. So the government just said, okay, it's a nutrient. Let's add it to the food supply. And by the way, this is the first fortified nutrient ever in the world was iodine. And so it was added to salt. So you'll see iodized table salt if you go to buy it in the store. It was added to salt because it was easy to bind potassium iodide to sodium chloride, with sodium chloride is salt. So it just worked out. And because back then everybody used salt, it was all over, there was never anyone who didn't put salt on their food. So it was a good way to do it. And then when they did this, the incidence of goiter disappeared. Problem solved. Okay, fine. But the amount of iodine that was added to the salt was only enough to stop that worst-case scenario of iodine deficiency conditions. It wasn't enough to prevent iodine insufficiency. So people still got hypothyroidism and still get hypothyroidism today and, and other conditions that are associated with low iodine. And, and back then, medical doctors, like I said before, they pre actually prescribed iodine. But that was before the fledgling pharmaceutical industry became big pharma. And when iodine was seen as a competitor to pharma antibiotics and thyroid meds, well, not surprisingly, iodine was made to disappear. That's why doctors don't know about it today. So we have a lot of raw foodists who might be eating salt. They might not be eating salt. So those who aren't eating so much salt, are their needs for iodine the same as vegans need for um, iodine? Uh, our needs for iodine are dependent on how well we treat our bodies in general. Uh, for example, the more contributing factors to cancer that we expose ourselves to, the higher the need for iodine. Um, but that doesn't mean that if we live very healthfully, that we don't need any iodine. We, we always need some. It's required by the body. I mean, you will, if you get absolutely zero and you get zero for long enough, uh, yeah, you'll, your health will go downhill very quickly. You will be so susceptible to things that your immune system just won't you know, be able to function properly and that, that'll be the end of you. So, and the amount we need at any particular time, like I've said before, is quote-unquote enough. Now, it's when we don't get enough that our health goes downhill, often very slowly so we don't notice it until we get some symptoms. So since the typical Western diet burdens the body and requires more nervous system energy to digest and less nerve energy for maintenance and healing, and then on top of that, we don't get enough sleep, which is where nerve energy is replenished, those eating and living the typical Western diet and, and lifestyle can see their health decline the way we know that it does. And they you know, blame it on growing older, but that's not really it. It's just having long-standing nutritional insufficiencies, which then become deficiencies near the end of their life. Uh, but then these folks hear that salt is bad, right? So we've heard salt is bad, so they stop using it. But this is the way that most people in the mainstream were getting the bulk of their iodine from. So now their health goes downhill even faster. And we're seeing today a rise in hypothyroidism and polycystic ovarian syndrome and fibrocystic breast disease conditions where iodine plays a key role because of the, the lowered amount of uh, iodized salt in the diet. So I would advise everyone to get those three most problematic nutrients test, tested, D, B12, and iodine, and do the iodine one with guidance from an iodine literate practitioner. Are there any risks associated with um, taking too much iodine? Well, yeah. Um, there's risks, uh, again, on one end of the spectrum is B12. You can't really do any harm. You can take a whole bottle. It's not just going to be a waste of money for you, really. D, yeah, you can do an overdose of vitamin D. Um, iodine, actually, there, there are risks associated with iodine, but it's not actually with taking iodine. In other words, the, the RDI, the recommended daily intake set by the U.S. government for iodine, is 150 um, micrograms a day. It's, it's really, it, it's a pittance. It's nothing. It's just enough to prevent that worst-case scenario of a goiter. Um, 
And you would get that from ID's, iDye's table salt. You take the table salt out of your diet, and now you're in trouble. But the point is that people take 10 times that amount. Uh, okay, if they're, if, they're dealing, if they're dealing with breast cancer, if they're dealing with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, something where because they are tested and shown to be very low in iodine or thyroid issues, of course, um, and, and they will take higher amounts. They will take amounts of 150 micrograms, not 150, uh, I'm sorry, 150 milligrams, not 150 micrograms, which is the RDI. So they'll take uh, 150 milligrams of iodine. And that's like, whoa, my God, that's such a lot. It, you'll just urinate out, just like B12, you'll urinate out what your body doesn't require, what it doesn't, what it doesn't need. Now, you don't want to waste money, obviously, and take more iodine than you need to take. And that's why testing is very important because most people say, well, I'm taking a multi and it's got iodine in it. Oh, yeah, how much does it have in it? 150 micrograms. I was like, that's nothing. It's, nothing. it's just going to prevent goiter, but it's not going to prevent a whole other list of things that not having sufficient iodine is going to be a, a, a causative factor. So they said, well, how much should I take? You need to test first to know a few things. And unlike the MMA test for B12, which just shows your status, you need to know your status for iodine, but you need to take two tests. There isn't one test like there is for B12. You have to take two tests, and you compare the results of those two tests to each other. If one test says you're fine and the other test says you're not fine, well, that means you're not fine, but you have a problem with... Uh, your sodium iodide symporters. It's a mechanism that actually absorbs the iodine. It, it, it gets very complex. But one of the reasons for iodine fails is people don't do this. They don't do the test. They take some iodine, and they don't know about iodine's companion nutrients. Now, we spoke today about the companion nutrients for vitamin D, right? Uh, magnesium and zinc and bar and all those others. Well, all that'll happen if you don't have enough of uh, vitamin D's companion nutrients, the cofactor nutrients, your body just won't utilize the vitamin D properly. And, but at least you can tell if you go back and retest and follow up. But with iodine, if, you're, if you don't have a sufficiency of iodine's cofactant nutrients, your body can manufacture too much hydrogen peroxide. I mean, it, already man, it always manufactures a little bit, but your body is able to deal with that. But it'll manufacture too much if you start taking a therapeutic amount of iodine. That can put you in the hospital. Okay, so that's why I'm saying there are ways to go horribly wrong with Iodine, um, count, uh, with iodine uh, treatment that you really can't with B12. It just, it, it just can't happen. Um, and, of course, with iodine, you can also take too little, which is what people do when they just take a multivitamin. Or they say, hey, I'm going to take some dulse or kelp. Actually, kelp is better, right? Kelp is a good source of iodine. Yeah, it is if it's fresh. But once you dry it to put it in the packages to sell it at the store, wave goodbye to 90% of the iodine. It just sublimates. It just comes right out. It, it's, it's not like water. Water boils off at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Iodine will boil off, so to speak. It'll turn into a gas and, and go bye-bye uh, at a little above room temperature. So certainly when you're, when you're heating, when you're drying the kelp to, in order to sell it in a store, in a package, you say goodbye to the iodine. So no, it's a good source of iodine, yes, when it's fresh, the way the Japanese eat it, but it's not a good source for iodine when it's, um, you know, in flakes in a package at the store. And that's something that people don't understand. And they, they think, no, I don't have to test for that. I've been, ta I've been eating kelp and sprinkling it on my salads for years, so I must be good. I said, well, let's test. And I'll tell you what, to even convince them to do it, because the test is not cheap. It's like 130 bucks. I said, I'll pay for the test if it shows you're all right. You pay for it if it shows you have a deficiency. You know, oh, sure, that's fine. Good deal there, because I know what's going to happen. And it comes back and they're low. 
because I know they're not getting it from the, the dried kelp. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, just a very important topic. We, we need to, to watch out for iodine fails. I've written articles for, how, for DIY, um, how to deal with your uh, D and B12 you know, self-assessments and correction. You can do it yourself if you just read the articles and get a good understanding of what you've read and it has all the resources. I tried writing the same article for iodine when I researched it and found out about it, how important it was, and I added it to my list of the three most, prob- you know, of the pro- most problematic nutrients. I couldn't write an article, a do-it-yourself article, because it's so complicated. You need to do that. It's like, you know, you, you don't want to work on dealing with cancer on your own. You really want to work with somebody who knows how to get rid of cancer. I'm not talking about oncologists because they just end up treating it with chemotherapy and radiation therapy, which doesn't work in 90% of cases. But you want to work with somebody who knows what they're doing. And that wouldn't be me. I can give you references and referrals to people who do know. That's their area of expertise. My area of expertise is DB12 and iodine. So you want to work with somebody on the iodine issue that knows that are going to prevent the fails. And I've had people that tried to do it on their own because they just wanted to save the counseling fee. And they ended up failing. And they blamed it on the iodine. And people said, see, told you, can't take iodine. That belongs in your medicine cabinet. And you put it on your finger when you get a cut. Well, first of all, that's not the same iodine. There is iodine that's supposed to be in your food that you can consume. So there is consumable iodine. Um, so that's why it's just not best to do this on your own, unless you want to buy all the books and do the research and go on all the different, uh, there's the peer-to-peer groups on Facebook and stuff like that. But even there, you're going to, I go on there sometimes and I'm horrified. I'm seeing, I'm seeing recommendations. I'm like, wait a minute, wait, you're not talking about magnesium. What, what? I don't understand this. How can you have this discussion? And it really just, it just bends my frame to hear this stuff. And I have to get in there and start saying, well, whoa, 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 Where, yeah, but I didn't read about that. Well, you need to read about that because he talks about it and Dr. Brownstein will talk about that. And da, da, da. So if you're just working with an iodine literate practitioner and they're all over the place and they, I work with people all around the world dealing with iodine and the only problem I've had with people in Italy and the only reason Italy is a problem is because the customs department in Italy is just horrendous. They will hold up, they'll hold up test results or, or test samples that they're, that they're trying to mail out to get to the lab and you have a finite amount of time to get urine samples to a lab and in customs and they just hold it up. They don't know what this is or, or the kit comes in and it's got iodine tablets in the kit. Well, now you're smuggling in drugs. It's four tablets. What are you talking about? And they, and they hold it up forever. So Italy is a problematic country for that reason. But everywhere else, we've been able to get people to do the right, you know, the correct two tests with the two labs in the world that do it. And then the assessment is done and, you know, that. And then when you, look, when you start taking vitamin D and you resolve your issues, you, you don't really get any toxicity of any kind. There's no detox going on, rather. Same thing with B12. There's no detox. But when you take iodine, if you've had an iodine deficiency, now you can start detoxing bromine. Bromine, as I mentioned, there's bromine, iodine, chlorine, fluorine. These are all the halogens. If you've been exposed to uh, bromine, fluorine, chlorine, they park in the iodine receptor sites if, if you don't have enough iodine coming in, if you have an iodine deficiency. They park there and, you know, they take up that, that receptor site on the cell. So then when you start doing therapeutic amounts of iodine, that bumps them out. Now they become systemic and they're, they're mobilized. They become systemic and they're toxic. So you were taking them in in low amounts here and there, but now they're all being thrust out and becoming systemic in your body at one time because you're taking the iodine and you feel like, hell, you're getting these headaches, you're getting all these things. And a lot of people blame it on the iodine. Oh, there you go. See, I'm having a bad reaction to the iodine. No, you're not. Why do some people have no bad reaction at all? The people that didn't have high bromine exposure. 
So no, it's not the iodine. You're, you're, this is bromine toxicity. That, and here's a way to deal with this. Here's a way to dial it down so it's, you know, it's tolerable because you don't want it to be intolerable. But that's why I was not able to write an article. You need to have a back and forth conversation with somebody who when these things happen, you know, and even when I make recommendations, they don't remember and they write back, well, what's going on here? And even though I explained it before, I don't say that. I said, I just say, here's what's happening because they either glossed over it or didn't read it because a lot of these back and forth emails, at least the ones that come from me to my clients, they're rather entailed because there's just a lot to know. I was interested in testing for iodine. I was interested in where I fell. And he said, oh, we don't really have to worry about that because, you know, if you have salt here and there, you know, because I, I try to be raw, but I'm, I'm not completely raw. But, um, you know, sometimes I might go out for some kind of uh, whole food vegan cooked meal or something like that. Well, if you, you know, if you go out here and there and you have some salt in your meal that they prepared, um, you know, you'll be fine. That That's what he said. Well, that's really ridiculous, even for the... The, the mainstream recommendation of 150 micrograms a day, that's what he should have been saying to at the very least because that's the RDI set by the government and that's what the AMA follows. He should say, well, you need 150 micrograms a day, so if you're not salting your food every day, I mean, you probably should just add that to a smoothie. What do you make, smoothies? You're one of those guys who make smoothies. Just add a little bit of salt into the smoothie because you do need 150 micrograms a day. Now, that's just to prevent, like I said before, the worst case scenario, this is what he doesn't know, uh, so you need actually more than that. You need about 12, gram, uh, 12 micrograms a day. But I'm not saying to people, now go out and go take 12 milligrams a day. Don't do that because you first you want to know if you have a deficiency, how deep it is. Is your sodium iodine symptoms working or not? Because if they're not working properly, you can take all the iodine you want. It's just going to come out in your urine and your body is not going to utilize it. And then if you don't go back and follow up with another retest, you won't know that. So thank you so much for all this wonderful information. It's really helpful for you to share and great for people to learn more information. And, you know, hopefully folks will go to your website, health101.org, right? 101. Right. And I, I just want to reiterate the importance of learning as a researcher and not as a student. Uh, the, the importance of caring enough about your future health to spend the time learning about how to thrive and, and not just survive and to invest in your future health by assessing and correcting the, the three most problematic nutrient levels that we spoke about today and optimally to do so with appropriate guidance. So if 40 years from now you discover that you didn't have optimal health after all because you got a diagnosis of something serious, again, I just want to remind everybody that they're not going to have access to a time machine to go back to 2016 to try something different which is why the decisions you make today are of the utmost importance. And yes, on health101.org, at, at my website, you can find my articles on D, B12, and iodine, and information about the two books that I've written about the raw food diet. And, and there's a great, my first book was really for the mainstream. So if you have people in your family that are like, what are you doing this crazy stuff for? You get them my first book, which is meant for the mainstream, which kind of explains it. And, and the first six chapters don't even have anything to do with diet or sleep or sunshine or anything. It just kind of gets them to value their future health. And also you'll find out information about my counseling services uh, at health101.org. Thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, you're welcome, Amy. You just heard the Holistic Pilgrimage podcast with Amy Lynn and Don Bennett. If you enjoyed the program, please click subscribe and share with your friends on Facebook and other social media outlets. Your help in spreading the word is very much appreciated. Please go to holisticpilgrimage.com to enjoy other podcasts, the blog, and more information about health coaching.